words are foundational to our understanding of the world. With words come power. With words come understanding, comprehension. Words help us grasp what is going on. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where where you're not able to hear words that are accompanying an act. So maybe it's a film from another country, you, you put it on the DVD, there's no subtitles. And you're trying to think, what's happening? I can see the pictures, or I can see something of what's going on, but but I need to hear, and so you go to the DVD sub-menu and you find out where the subtitle button is, and, and then it makes sense. Then there's comprehension and clarity. Then you understand. Or maybe it says you travel, you don't speak the language, the country you're visiting, and, and you miss what's really happening. You're there with your phrase book trying to understand, or Google Translate, but, but you just don't quite get it. You can see things, but you can't really comprehend it because you don't understand. Or Maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe this isn't your first language, and so you're thinking, I wish he would slow down a bit. Trying to grasp what's going on. Words help us understand actions. Life without words are hard. And as we reach something of the climax of our short crucifixion series we've been looking at as we move towards Easter, something of the climax, I want us to focus in on how important Jesus' words are as we try and understand the event in front of us. I think in many ways the words of Jesus, in our verses for this morning, define what the cross is about. As he opens his mouth and speaks in four little sections, so he opens our minds to reveal something of what's happening, of why he is hanging there, of the significance of his death for us. We've seen week by week, as we've gone through this series in Luke, that Jesus is in complete control. And so here on the cross, these are not despairing random words of a man who's lost control. Even during the most suffering here, he is speaking words we need to hear. So as I said, what we'll do is we'll have four short sections with an opportunity for just quiet reflection after each one. And then I will uh, bring us together again, move on to the next section, and then we'll pray at the end. The first word of Jesus in our section for this morning is there in verse 28. And it's striking, I think, that Jesus doesn't comfort the women who are mourning. He doesn't comfort them, but not because he doesn't care or he doesn't love them. It's because he loves them and so he warns them. So his first word then is a warning. Let me read that section again. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, 
What will happen when it's dry? Why does he speak like this? What's he saying? Have a look at verse 31. I think he's saying that he is the green tree and Jerusalem is the dry wood. And so he's saying, at least from the human side, if the Romans treat an innocent person like him, like this, then how are they going to mistreat a nation who is revolting against them? Or from the divine side, if God has not spared Jesus, how much more will the impenitent nation not be spared when God's judgment comes upon them? Jesus is warning them. He is saying, my death on the cross in one sense spells death for the nation. They shouldn't be mourning for him. They should be mourning for themselves. Creation will be turned on its head as in time God's anger will be poured out upon Jerusalem. And rather than women and children being protected and blessed by God, so catastrophic will be the events to come that actually, verse 29, it's the barren women who will be blessed. That actually, verse 30, people will want a quick death. Mountains fall on us, hills cover us. And history tells us, round about AD 66, the Jews of Judea rebelled against Rome. And so they were systematically and horribly defeated. By AD 70, the Romans have surrounded Jerusalem and they slowly apply the stranglehold. And then they breach the walls. Then they ransack the city. Then they burn down the temple. And as they decimated Jerusalem and they desolated the temple, so there was an astonishing degree of suffering. Thousands were slaughtered. Thousands were enslaved. Thousands were tortured and killed for amusement later on. Jesus warns them. A number of us were away last week on the Word Life conference. Don Carson was there. He says this about these verses. He says, there have been a great number of deaths. So there have been greater number of deaths. Six million in the Nazi death camps, mostly Jews, and an estimated 20 million under Stalin but never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus looks ahead three decades or so and he warns them of what is coming. Which means as we look at the cross, it's not just a pointer towards God's love, the point or two of his justice, his just anger, his severe wrath against sin. We can't simply be those with the women who look to Jesus on the cross and mourn his death. But we're to be those who look inside and mourn our sin, confess our sin. Or who look ahead knowing that one day a final judgment will come. A judgment that will overshadow AD 70 when God's final anger is poured out. 
moment of quiet. So Jesus warns the women. The second word from Jesus is in verse 34. Again, I'll read the section from 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus' second word, verse 34, he forgives. They're verses, aren't they, that drip with irony. Verses where people speak far more than they know. Jesus, the sinless one, crucified in between two sinful criminals. The one who does not deserve death in between the two who do. Jesus, the one who could have stopped it all in a moment and just rolled up the sky and yet the people mock him. He saved others, let him save himself. And as the soldiers mock him, if you're king of the Jews, save yourself. But they don't realise he can't save others and himself. So he chooses to save others instead of himself. As our children's Bible at home puts it, It wasn't the nails that kept him hanging on the cross. It was love. And Jesus, the one who forgives, which is utterly astonishing. Do you find it easy to forgive? Is that something that comes naturally to you? Perhaps people hurt you by mistake or or don't think about your feelings or deliberately are mean to you. Well, factor that up and up and up and up. And you see something of what Jesus does here. 
I take it he's, he's showing us what Sermon on the Mount discipleship looks like in the extreme. What it means to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. What it means to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. What it means to love like God who forgives his enemies. Who forgives people like us. I take it we can't really shoot past these verses without considering, in one sense, what it might mean for us. Here this morning at, at Morden Rose, for our gospel family, our community, the New Testament assumes we will need to forgive each other. The New Testament tells us to forgive each other. Simply cutting ourselves off from other people and and being an island and, 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 and not being vulnerable just doesn't work. That's not what church is about. We're called to be the family of God and we're diverse. We've got all kinds of ideas and backgrounds and personalities and quirks and foibles and stories and agendas, languages. And so it's assumed we will need to forgive each other. We're called to. Jesus was forgiving enemies. In one sense, how much more are we to forgive family? But isn't it hard to forgive family? Harder? The ones that we love the most are the ones that we hurt the most. And the ones that hurt us the most. And so, so look at the cross and forgive each other. A minute silence. And as he prays for their forgiveness, so they, Luke tells us, they divide up his clothes by casting lots. Which, if you know your Bibles, is, is an allusion to Psalm 22. It's a psalm that speaks of God's king horribly persecuted and set upon and deserted 
but ultimately vindicated and delivered. And the news of this king's deliverance goes, the psalmist tells us, to the ends of the earth. All, all kinds of people hearing in and, and rejoicing and benefiting from his deliverance. Which I take it is why the next few verses are so important. And we see that Jesus welcomes. I'll read again from verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. We've just seen Jesus forgiving his enemies from the cross, and with God comes, or with forgiveness from God comes reconciliation and comes friendship. You see that clearly in these verses. Darkness coming over the whole land is, is Bible language for God's anger. God is cross that eternal relationship between father and son, in a sense, has been broken. He is angry with Jesus because of our sin. As we sing, the father turns his face away. And with a sun that stops shining comes a curtain that is torn in two. The curtain in the temple was there to separate a holy God from an unholy people. And so, as God the Father's anger is poured out upon God the Son, so that separation is removed. His anger is spent. Sin is dealt with. And so we can be friends with God. Access is there. Reconciliation. Friendship. Which is what you see in the second thief. as we said with the kids. I think they're meant to be a model for us. It's an extraordinary few little verses that just give something of what the Christian faith is about at its most, most basic. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're just not sure, maybe you're looking in on Christian things. If you missed it in the kids' slots, have a look at the three things that he does. He recognises what he's done. So there in verse 40... He is one who fears God. Don't you fear God, he says. Being killed on a cross in their culture was seen as a God-forsaken death. It, it had a stigma that God was angry with your death. It brought his displeasure, his judgment, his curse. But the criminal in 41 says, I deserve it. I know I'm being punished justly for my crimes. He recognises where he stands before God. 
He knows that by himself he deserves God's judgment. He deserves this kind of accursed death. But then, because of what can only be and what always is God's kindness, he recognises who Jesus is. I take it out of the corner of his eye, the, the criminal can see a weak and dying and pitiful man, beaten, broken, spat upon, bloody. But he speaks as though Jesus is a king. He sees much more than just a dying man. The the light bulb switches on and he sees him for who he really is, God's promised king. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then he ends by asking for mercy. A lot of people you speak to think being a Christian is, is about being good, or at least being good enough to keep a grumpy God off your back. And so this bit should stop us in our tracks. The criminal brings nothing with him to the table. He's not got a pass to offer. It's only a life of crime. He's already acknowledged that that he deserves what he's getting. He deserves God's just anger, God's curse on the cross. He's got no future to offer. There's no good deeds he can do. There's no rotors he can go on. No money that he can give. No boxes to tick. He's just minutes away from his death. That's a surprise because we want to bring our good behaviour along and we want to believe we can contribute and, and make God like us and make God pleased with us for what we've done. It's how the world works. You want something in the world, you earn it. You want money, you work. You want friends, you prove your, prove your trustworthy. You want status, you show you deserve it. That's, it's just how the world works. But when it comes to forgiveness, friends, we're just like this dying criminal. We bring nothing with us but our sin. It's not automatic. As far as we can tell, the other criminal remains unforgiven. Not in paradise. But we are those who are to throw ourselves upon the mercy of the King. Knowing that we deserve judgment. But knowing that he is merciful. Knowing that the temple curtain has been torn knowing that we have access. A minute.
And finally, verse 46. Jesus commits. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. One of the themes I think we've seen week on week on week it is the control of Jesus in these verses at the end of Luke. The whole process, the events we've seen leading up to the cross have, have not been accidents. It's not been plan B or plan C or plan D. This has been the plan. Jesus has been in control. And so it is that as he as he makes his final breath, he commits himself into the Father's hands. Because the task is finished. Because sin is dealt with. Because the wrath of God is satisfied forever. Because it's job done. But it's striking, for those looking in, they see that he is special in one sense. This is not a normal death. So the centurion, verse 47 praises God. He sees the righteousness of Jesus, by which I think he means his innocence. Jesus was innocent. The cross was not just, not deserved. But striking to the crowds in verse 48, there seems to be a shift in their mood. They had gathered presumably to, to witness a death that they had called for that they had contributed to. They had come to watch. But now as they beat their breasts, there's this show of mourning, of sorrow, of contrition, perhaps moved by his death. Maybe they've changed their minds about him. Maybe they're full of sorrow for the part that they've played. Maybe they see something of their guilt and their culpability. Maybe there's a regret. They seem to change their stance. They change their idea about Jesus. The death that they've wanted means they mourn. But Jesus is utterly in control as he commits himself to his Father. Remember that. Remember that in the midst of suffering and hardship in your life, that God has absolute control over what is going on. And as here, he brings amazing fruit through suffering, through hardship. Even in the darkest, most painful moments, God is still in control. And he can, and he will, and he does bring incredible fruit from it. A moment of quiet.
And so we have these four words of Jesus. Helping us understand something more of what was going on at the cross. Helping us grasp the events. We've seen there was a word of warning. Pointing ahead to another judgment. Pointing to God's just anger. We've seen a word of forgiveness. But even in the midst of the cross, he's forgiving. We've seen a word of of welcome and reconciliation. With temple curtains being torn as God's anger is poured out. As penitent criminals are promised life with Jesus. And finally, we've seen something of his control as he commits himself to his father at the end of his job. We see something of the fruit that comes from God's control, despite suffering, through suffering. Let me pray for us. Father, you know us, you know the tendencies that we have in our hearts. You know that we shy away from warnings. We don't necessarily like to hear of your justice and your holiness. And so we thank you for this word of Jesus that reminds us of a judgment to come. That reminds us of your justice. Lord, you know how how hard we find it to forgive one another. How easily we can let squabbles and differences get out of hand. We pray that, that we might be a people and that this might be a community of forgiveness where we're patient and kind and where despite our, our differences there is a genuine love and unity for one another. Thank you, Father, that you are a God who welcomes. Thank you for the cross that that brings reconciliation. That brings friendship. That deals with our sin. Thank you, too, for your utter control, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your, your love poured out for us, shown for us. Thank you that you finished the job. Thank you that you were in control and are in control, in control of the suffering here on the cross, but the suffering that we're going through in our lives as well. Thank you that that suffering is never random or meaningless, but you're bringing about your plans and your purposes, and you're bringing forth fruit. Help us to trust that when we're in the thick of it, when we find it hard to trust that. Be at work in us and through us, we pray, for your glory. Amen.